Well, good morning, Bayshore. I am so thrilled, absolutely thrilled that you're joining us this weekend for the weekend experience here at Bayshore. We're just honored to have you listening. People are listening from all over the place to this uh, production today, and we're so grateful that you're part of this weekend's experience here at Bayshore. By the way, this Thursday is Thanksgiving. I don't know about you, but Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. I love Thanksgiving. Love July 4th. That's like second and Christmas maybe next. I love, uh, I love uh, Thanksgiving and I know you do as well. This has been a different year and it's going to be a different kind of Thanksgiving for a lot of people. But listen, we still have so much to be thankful for. It reminds me of the pilgrims in 1620, the very first Thanksgiving. Uh, they went through that, that uh, just horrential winter and all the stuff they went through and yet they stopped again give thanks to help them uh, give thanks to the Lord getting them through that difficult time. So this is a very relevant Thanksgiving. So we're going to be giving thanks for God's faithfulness, keeping us going. So, hey, listen, happy Thanksgiving. And I am thankful that you listen to this. And I'm also thankful that I get to be your pastor. It's such a big deal for me to serve you. So I'm thankful for that. Hey, listen, we're in a series called Mega Moments. And actually, we conclude the series today. And uh, I love this series. I've uh, Lots of great emails from you guys and texts. Thank you so much for your encouragement and what this series meant to you. Uh, but today we're looking at one of the last mega moments in the, in the Old Testament. And uh, we're trying to understand the Old Testament so we can understand, you know, how the Old Testament brought us to Jesus in the New Testament and get a little handle on that. And so today we're going to be looking at maybe what is a little bit obscure to some people. Maybe it's obscure to you. And this is what's called the, uh, the captivity and the exile of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. First thing we need to know is, you know, Solomon was king when we left last week and his son Rehoboam was supposed to take over for him, but there was a rebellion against Solomon's son and the rebellion was because Solomon was heavy in taxation and he had all these building, uh, building projects and he was working the people real hard. And so the people were led in revolt by a guy by the name of Jeroboam and this all happened in 922 BC. They led this revolt against, uh, against Rehoboam. And they said to Rehoboam, we'll let you be king, but you got to say you're not going to tax us as much and you're not going to work us as hard and there's not going to be as much conscription of labor. And, uh, and so Rehoboam, you know, heard their complaint. Then he listened to some of his young friends and some of his older friends and then he decided he's going to, you know, he's going to push the lever down on him. He's going to be harder than his father Solomon was. And so he told him, he said, listen, you think my father was hard? I'm going to be harder than my dad. I want to be difficult on you. And so they, they went, it says every man went to his own tent. They rebelled against Rehoboam and uh, they started their own kingdom in the north. And 10 tribes, 10 tribes left uh, Rehoboam and they went to the north and they were the northern tribes of Israel and they were led by Jeroboam and Rehoboam had the, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin and the southern kingdom was called Judah and the northern kingdom was called Israel. So when you read the Old Testament, read about Judah and Israel, two different countries, uh, that'll happen in 922 BC. Hey, listen, there's a little bit of uh, some lessons we can learn about that division, by the way, uh, and you can read all about that in 2 Kings. But that division occurred because Rehoboam wasn't willing to be flexible. He wasn't willing to be flexible. Listen, all relationships require flexibility. 
You got to be flexible in the relationships with other people. If you are hard-headed and you're gonna gotta have your way all the time, you're gonna have relational conflicts in your life. And so Rehoboam was hard-headed. He wasn't gonna listen, and he just kind of like held his ground. And he had division because of his lack of flexibility. Karen and I, we're we, you know we've been married for all these years, and uh, we're very different. And one of the things we're very different about is is she likes cinnamon applesauce. Can you imagine that cinnamon? applesauce. I don't know why in the world, but she likes cinnamon applesauce. I like the original applesauce. Now, I don't know if you're out there and you're listening to this and you like cinnamon applesauce, but if you like cinnamon applesauce, you're just wrong. That's all there is to it. The original applesauce is the best. So Karen and I, we have this battle about cinnamon applesauce versus uh, original applesauce. And so we solved that problem. You know, I, I have my own applesauce and she has her, has her own cinnamon applesauce. Hey, listen, relationships have conflict and you got to make sure that you're flexible. You got, if you're a leader, you got to be flexible. You got to listen to people and uh, you got to lead. You got to hear the Lord and all that, but you got to listen and uh, don't be be a Rehoboam and split the kingdom. And here's another principle about that. You know, there's all kinds of problems in the Old Testament because these kingdoms split apart. And it's, it's, it's whenever there's a split, whenever there's a division in a company, a church, a family, it causes pain and it causes incredible consequences for people. So, hey, listen, here's my principle. My principle is better to prevent a damaged relationship than try to heal a damaged relationship. Better to try, try to prevent a damaged relationship than to try to heal a damaged relationship. Had lunch not too long ago with somebody. They were going through this nasty divorce and custody battles and, and uh, legal issues against each other. And there was just pain on the person's face in front of me because splits cause a lot of pain. And it's better to really, really try really hard not to get to that point. And so anyhow, there was this division in the kingdom. And here's the kingdom uh, of the northern kingdom run by Jeroboam. What Jeroboam did was he was insecure. Uh, he was insecure and he was afraid that the people would eventually go back down to the temple to worship. They were supposed to worship at the temple three times a year. And he thought all of his people in the north were going to come to the temple in the south and they were going to worship in the temple. And then their hearts were going to change and they were going to go back to Rehoboam. So he set up these idols in the northern kingdom and two different towns particularly. Uh, Dan was one of them. And they worshiped these idols and Jeroboam led the northern kingdom into idol worship, and they began to worship idols. And every king after Jeroboam fell into that same pit. They were afraid for the people go, to go to the temple to worship, so they created these rival festivals. They created these, this rival, uh, this, these rival gods, and, and eventually they built their own temple up there, and uh, that was a really, really big problem. And so in the southern kingdom, by the way, in the northern kingdom, all bad kings, every king was evil. Every king was bad. And uh, they just had one bad king after another bad king after another bad king. Southern kingdom had some good kings and some bad kings, some good kings and some bad kings. But what happened in both kingdoms is that they were led astray by the tribal gods in the region. And God had told Israel to be exclusively devoted to him. God had called and chosen Israel to not worship him with all the other gods, but to worship him exclusively as the God, because God is the God. He's not a God. He is the God. He is the only God. Israel said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God is one God, and you shall worship the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. So Israel was called to that exclusive worship of Jehovah God. And they were uh, constantly defecting from that and worshiping these other gods. So what did God do? He sent these prophets that would come and confront the kings that were leading the people into rebellion against the Lord. And so that's what he would do. These prophets would come. I remember when uh, Karen and I got married in 1977, we had uh, our Sunday school teacher, a guy named Buzzy Friedel, uh, who was the guy that performed our wedding ceremony. And uh, he was our Sunday school teacher. He was a really cool guy, and we liked him. But he was very, very unconventional. That's probably why we liked him. We were so young, and he was kind of edgy, and so it was interesting. And so uh, he did our wedding, and it was his first wedding, and it was so unconventional. Now that Karen and I look back on it, we're not so sure we would want all that to happen But at our wedding. But anyhow, he was doing the vows with Karen and I, and uh, before he had us do the vows, he said to Karen first, he said, Karen, are you absolutely sure that you want to be only married to Danny? Are you absolutely sure that he's the only person you want to be married to? And, uh, and she said, sure. And uh, he said, are you sure? And then he said, I want you to turn around and I want you to look over this auditorium to make sure that there's nobody else in this crowd that you'd rather have than Danny. And her face turned red. She could not believe he was doing that. I could not believe he was doing that. I'm thinking we made a big mistake having this guy do our wedding. But anyhow, Karen turned around and she looked over the crowd. There's about 300 people there. And she looked over the crowd. And what really, really bothered me was how long it took her to look over the crowd. And then finally she turned around and then he had me do the same thing. And so uh, he was making sure that we were going to be exclusively committed to each other and we would be uh, solely committed to each other. And that was what Israel was called to. Israel was called to this, this union with God, that God was going to be the God that they loved and that they served and they, and they were faithful to. And so God was very, very faithful to do that. So, you know, what it says in the uh, book of Exodus, Exodus uh, chapter 34, verse 14, it says this really disturbing verse to some people, Exodus 34, verse 14, do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Now, that's an interesting, uh, an interesting uh, passage uh, because it really says that God is a God who wants us to exclusively worship him. It's interesting, Oprah Winfrey heard this preached on in, uh, in her late 20s. She heard this verse quoted by a pastor, and uh, that was her reasoning for leaving Christianity and leaving the dogma and all the rules of Christianity, she was raised as Baptist, and she said she used to go to this church, big church, Baptist church, the pastor was really great, and when he quoted this verse, she decided that she was not going to be able to follow the Lord if he was a jealous God, it was a jealous God. Now, it's interesting, this word jealous is uh, actually uh, many times translated zealous, zealous, not jealous, but zealous. God is a zealous God. God is zealous for us. Here's a picture of Oprah Winfrey. We all know Oprah Winfrey, and she's done such a good God job. She's such a great interviewer and uh, has done so many good things in our country. But absolutely, on this score, Oprah is confused. She's a good, good public interviewer, but I'm not sure how good a theologian she is. Because when God says that he's a jealous God, what God is saying is that I've created you. It says in Isaiah 43 that I've created you, I've formed you, I've made you. 
And I have called you to glorify my name. So when it talks about God being a jealous God, here's what it means. It means that God knows how we've made and he's zealous for us. He wants us to reach our fullest potential. And we cannot be happy. We cannot be fulfilled. We cannot have joy in our heart. And by the way, the Bible talks so much about joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength, it says in Nehemiah. It says in the book of Philippians, for rejoice in the Lord always. God wants us to be brimming over with joy. God wants us to be brimming over with absolute celebration and love of him. So when God says that he's a jealous God, it's actually that God is a zealous God for us. And he wants us to reach our full potential. And we cannot reach our full potential. If we center our life around anything else other than him, because we were created by him, for him, and when our life is centered on the Lord, we are deeply satisfied and we reach our greatest potential. And God would, God just, it breaks God's heart to see us pulled away to these lesser gods and these lesser values and these lesser goals in life so that we don't reach the potential that God created us for. And so God gets jealous or zealous for us when he sees us drift in the wrong direction. Just imagine you have a beautiful, beautiful daughter and you just are so in love with your beautiful daughter. She's such a talented, beautiful, innocent soul. She's so well-spoken. She's well-educated. She's so gifted. She plays the piano and you see all this potential. And then you see someone, some loser guy, somebody that really has no future and somebody that's really got, doesn't have a, their life together at all. He begins to seduce your daughter away with him and you know he's gonna destroy her. You know he's gonna abuse her you know he's gonna he's not gonna treat her well what would you feel as a father you would feel zeal you would feel anger you would feel jealousy jealousy for your daughter because you wanted your daughter to reach her fullest potential and when it says that God is a zealous God or God is a jealous God and we're called to worship him completely it's because God has designed us that we would have absolute fulfillment in him God is most glorified John Piper says, when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So we're created, you were created, I was created to glorify God. Now I've got this uh, Martin guitar, and this is guitar, my personal guitar that I have, that I have in my office, and I've had some really, really good guitars in my, in my life. I had, I've had a Guild. I think my first car, guitar was a Fender. Then I got a Guild. And then I had a couple uh, Taylor guitars, which are really, really good guitars. But this is the first Martin guitar I've ever had. And Martins are, you know, the Cadillac of guitars, I think, one of the best guitars you can ever get. And they're made actually in uh, Nazareth, Pennsylvania, not too far from here. And uh, I got this guitar and I play it some. It's hanging on my wall of my office. But, uh, and these, uh, these guitars are handmade. They are made uh, with great skill and they're just really, really uh, incredibly, uh, incredibly beautiful and, and great sounding guitars. But can you imagine if you are a guitar manufacturer and you, uh, you know, are from Nazareth, Pennsylvania, you work in the Martin uh, factory and you make Martin guitars and you go to a lake and you see somebody with a Martin guitar in a kayak or in a canoe and they take their Martin guitar that was made at your, uh, at your manufacturing shop and with care and with artistic ability, this beautiful guitar was made. And they're using the guitar for a paddle, to paddle in the lake. Can you imagine what you would feel 
what you would feel as a creator of this beautiful guitar. You would be jealous. You would be frustrated. You would be enraged that this guitar that was made to make beautiful music was being used to paddle uh, a canoe or a kayak. So that's what it means when it says that God is a jealous God. And Israel was called to be exclusively devoted to him. And yet Israel was constantly drifting away, constantly drifting away to these foreign gods and these other gods. And they were constantly drifting and worshiping Baal. And yet they were called, they were created by God to be exclusively connected to the one who made them. That God created them and and God made them in his image and God created them to glorify him. And we are most, God is most glorified when we're most satisfied in him. So how do we glorify God? By letting God bring pleasure in our life. God bringing pleasure in life. I love uh, the movie Chariots of Fire, and I've watched that movie many times in my in my life. And it's a great movie about the about Eric Little, the great uh, uh, the great uh, footsman, the great runner in the 1929 Olympics. And there's that scene in the movie. uh, We have a picture of it. The scene in the movie where he's talking to his sister. His sister's upset with him because he's running the Olympics, and uh, and he says, "I believe." God made me for a purpose. I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Israel was made by God to worship the only God, to love the only God. And out of that love relationship that Israel would have with God, they would reflect God's glory on this planet. And so Israel was constantly defecting, going apostate, they were, they were drifting, defecting away from God. And so God would send these prophets that would speak to them. And these prophets would come, like Jeremiah, for instance. He went to Je- Jehoiakim, one of the kings of uh, uh, Judah. And he went to Jehoiakim and he confronted him and actually wrote a, 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 a scroll, a prophecy to him. And uh, he listened, he took this scroll and he would read it, Joy Kim the king. Jeremiah was confronting him about Joy Kim not following the will of the Lord. And so Joy Kim took his penknife and he kept cutting out pieces that he didn't like and throwing it into the fire, throwing it into the fire. And he burned up the whole scroll. And so Jeremiah wrote another one. He didn't want to hear what Jeremiah said. And here's a great, great principle for my pastor colleagues that I serve with in this community and in this country. Listen, we are called not only to love and encourage people and and lift people up, but we're also called by God to challenge people. When people drift away from the faith, when people are not making Jesus the center of their life, you're called to be a prophet, not just simply a priest that comforts them. And so that's part of what we need to do. And Jeremiah, you know, sometimes when he confronted the kings, uh, one time he was thrown into a well. He was put in this well, and there was no water in the well. It was just mud. And for weeks, Jeremiah stayed in that well and, and, and mud up to his waist. And finally, a guy by the name of Ebek Melech uh, pulled him out with ropes, and, and Jeremiah was, was persecuted. Isaiah, the great prophet of Isaiah, was sown asunder. It says in the book of Hebrews. And then we have, uh, we have uh, Elijah who confronted Ahab who had led uh, the northern kingdom into uh, Baal worship. And uh, Jezebel uh, said she was going to kill Elijah. So these prophets 
were, didn't garnish a lot of uh, people's praise, but they were faithful to God's word. And let me just tell you something. God wants men to raise up and women to raise up in this day that teach the word and are honest and will also lift up the Lord. And even if it means to challenge people, we need to be like prophets as well as priests and comfort people. Now, there's a, uh, I was watching the, uh, the Ravens-New England uh, Patriot game last Sunday night. It was torrential rain in the game. It was a pretty fun game to watch, actually. And uh, the Ravens, unfortunately, lost. But there's a picture of uh, Sarah Thompson, who's the first NFL referee, confronting Bill Belichick. And uh, she had called uh, a place, uh, a penalty on the Patriots, and she is confronting Bill Belichick and making him miserable, which just makes me so happy, actually. I'm not a Patriot fan, and she's confronting him, and you can see the expression on his face. And that is what the prophets did. The prophets in the Old Testament, they confronted the kings, and the kings didn't like it, but they were faithful to do that. So what happened after they perpetually sinned and walked away from the Lord? What happened to Israel when they continued to, to go into these, uh, the, the defection from their faith and to worship these false gods? What happened to them? Well, they, they did that time and time again. And finally, in 722 B.C., very important date, 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, the Assyrian nation came, the Assyrian nation came, and they came and they invaded the northern kingdom and Hoshea was the king at that point, and they took Hoshea captive, and they completely deported the, the, the northern kingdom and subdued them and conquered them. And here's what's interesting about that. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom disappear from history. They disappear from history. We never see them again. They evaporate into the populace of Assyria. And so the judgment of God came upon the northern kingdom. And listen, here's what's important for us to remember. God warned them time and time again. It wasn't just like one warning and then the Assyrians came. It was like warning after warning after warning after warning. The Bible says that God is, is slow and is not slow in keeping his promises, but he wants everyone to repent. And so he sent these, these messages over and over and over again to the northern kingdom. I remember when uh, Karen and I uh, were first here at the church, and uh, I was working in the office one uh, late one afternoon, and Karen was in the front of the church. She was doing some weeding uh, of the flower bed there. And our little boy, Tim, was, uh, he was, I don't know how old he was. He was maybe four or five. He wasn't very old. He was in the front yard with her. And there happened to be a dog that ran across the front yard at, uh, of, the, of the church. And Tim saw that dog, and he began to, to go after that dog, and he's walking out toward the road. He's walking out toward the, the Route 24 that's in front of the Millsburg campus here. And he's starting to walk out, and he's pointing his finger, doggy, doggy, and he's walking out. And then Karen turns around just in time to see him walking toward that road, and there's a big... Uh, big truck coming down the road and she jumped up and she ran across the uh, she ran across the yard and grabbed him away from the road and then she just lit him up she lit him up I don't know if you know what that means but she just gave him a whooping and uh, I know that's certainly not the only way to, to deal with kids I sure get that and understand that we don't have time to get into all that but listen she lit him up and the reason she laid him up was because, not because she hated him, not because she despised him, not because she like, you know, just, just didn't care anything for him. It was because of how much she loved him, how much she loved him that brought about 
the judgment that he experienced from his mother. And that's the same thing with the Lord. When the Lord judges, when the Lord corrects, when God lets somebody through their, their, their poor choices and their poor uh, uh, choices over and over again, they keep doing the same thing. They keep abusing their body with drugs or they keep abusing their body with alcohol. They keep abusing their body. They keep doing all these things that they've had warning after warning after warning. And then something major happens and God brings judgment on them. It's not a sign of his disfavor. It's a sign of his love. It's a sign of his mercy. God didn't hate the northern kingdom. God loved the northern kingdom. And then in 597 B.C., same thing happened to Judah. Judah had worshipped the Lord. Sometimes they had some good kings. One king by the name of Josiah was a great king. He was a wonderful king. But then they had all these bad kings. One king by the name of Manasseh was an awful king. His father, Hezekiah, was a great king. He was an awful king. He filled Jerusalem with blood. He had all these, doing these terrible things. He sacrificing kids to Moloch and this other pagan god. And so God brought judgment on the land of Judah from, uh, from the Babylonians. From the Babylonians. And by the way, if you read the book in the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is a, a prophet in the Old Testament saying, God, why are you using the Babylonians, who are wicked people, to judge your people, Judah? And it doesn't make any sense. Why would you use a more wicked people to judge us? And yet God was bringing discipline and correction on the, 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 the people of Judah. And so Judah was taken captive, and they were in captivity. They were in captivity for 70 years. Jeremiah prophesied that it would be 70 years that they would be in captivity. And so they were in captivity for 70 years. And, and listen, they went to Babylon. And remember what their sin was, what uh, Judah's sin was? Same sin that Israel had. The sin that they had was idol worship, idol worship. And they were worshiping these false gods. And when they went to Babylon, they were overwhelmed with idol worship. Because in Babylon, uh, Babylon means gate of the gods. And so it was the epicenter of idol worship. And they were just exposed to it. It was the, they just saw all the idol worship they ever wanted to see in their whole life. And they got cured of it. When they came back, they never, ever again entered into idol worship. It cured them of that. But listen, remember this. God uses correction in the Old Testament, the correction in the Old Testament. He uses the correction because of how much he loves his people. And so that's what happened. These are mega events in the Old Testament. The splitting of the kingdom, the kingdoms going into idol worship, and then God judging the, the respective kingdoms by different uh, secular nations. Very, very important thing. But that's not the end of the story. Not the end of the story. Because they were in Babylon for 70 years. And Jeremiah said, listen, you better plant gardens. You better build houses. You better uh, pray for... The land of Babylon, because you're going to be there a while. You know, it's not going to be over just like that. You know, you're, you're going to be there a while because I've got something to teach you. And sometimes, you know, God keeps us in a situation for a while to teach us something. And all of us, you know, we want things to change. We want COVID to be over with, for sure. We definitely want COVID to be over with. But listen, the most important question is, what is God teaching us during this time with COVID? What's God trying to teach us as a people? And so they, he said, hey, he said, Jeremiah said, listen, you know, build houses, plant gardens. You're going to be here a while because God has something to teach you. He has something to teach you. But after 70 years, uh, there was a king, a new king, a new nation, Persian king. 
uh, by the name of Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. If you took world history in high school or college, you'll learn about Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great, it says in the book of Isaiah that he was going to liberate the people and let the people go back. And so they were going home. They were going home. And so there was two different groups of people that went. Ezra, a, a guy, there's a book in the Old Testament named, by the name of Ezra. Ezra led the people uh, out of Babylon to build the temple. And then later, a few years later, 100 years later, 150 years later, a guy named Nehemiah, he led the people back to rebuild the walls, and the people came back home. They had sinned, they had been wayward, and now they were coming home. They were coming home. You see, the Bible is all about when we've gone astray, coming home. The Bible is about when we've completely lost our way, finding our way back home. Remember the prodigal son story in Luke 15 where he had, he had sinned and he'd gone to the far country and he had sinned uh, against the Lord and the Lord brought him home. He came back home. He came to himself and he came back home. The Bible is about a homecoming story that we have sinned and we've gone astray and now we come to ourselves and we're coming back home. And so it's not that the children of Israel... Uh, the children of Judah that were in the Judean kingdom, the southern kingdom. It's not that they stayed in Babylon, but they left Babylon and they came back home. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You were away from the Lord. You were wayward. You turned away from the Lord and you went in living a wild, wild life. And you, you came back home and you came to the Lord. I, I remember uh, hearing about Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham. Can you imagine being the son of Billy Graham, how hard that would be. And he was the son of Billy Graham, and uh, Bill, uh, Franklin Graham was a wild guy. This is a picture of him in 1972. And uh, he, got, uh, he was promiscuous. Uh, he said, I didn't want God to run my life. I wanted to run my own life. I wanted to have fun. So he drank, he partied, he did drugs. And here he is. His father had sent him to a, a wonderful private school in New York. And Franklin Graham was just living like a, a wild man, living away from the Lord. And he said, I did not want the Lord to run my life. I wanted to run my own life. I wanted to do my own thing. But when he was 22 years old, he, he, he felt how empty he was. 22 years old, he got down on his knees and he decided that the way he was living, he had rebelled against his dad, greatest preacher in the world. He rebelled against the church. He rebelled against the Bible. He rebelled against all that stuff, and it left him empty. And he came to himself, and at 22 years old, he got down on his knees, and he made Jesus the Lord of his life. And Jesus changed Franklin Graham's life. He had been in exile. He had been in Babylon, and he decided to come home. He decided to come home. He has a great book uh, telling his story. Uh, it's entitled Rebel with a Cause. Rebel with a cause. Of course, Franklin Graham now helps um, Samaritan's Purse. Here's a picture of him, uh, and he preaches around the world uh, like his dad did. But he, wherever there's a hurricane, wherever there's a tsunami, wherever there's a disaster, in fact, during COVID in New York City, you'll see Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse. And we've just recently you know, packed boxes that we're sending for children around the world for Christmas time. And God changed Franklin Graham's life. Because he was in exile, he rebelled against God, he was worshiping the idols, he was worshiping sex, he was worshiping drugs, he was worshiping alcohol, he was worshiping all the things 
that he was not raised to worship, but the Holy Spirit convicted his heart. He put his faith in Jesus, and he came back home. Now, when I was growing up, I have two sisters. I have a, a sister that's five years younger than me, and I have a sister that's eight years younger than me. And myself and my older sister, Denise, we were both really involved in the church. I played music in the church, and my sister, Denise, played music in the church, and uh, we were highly involved in ministry as I was growing up. But my youngest sister, Debbie, uh, had a lot of trouble finding her spot. And when she was 15 years old, my sister, Debbie, uh, she walked completely away from the Lord. She walked away from how we were raised, uh, and I mean, she was, she was wild. She was partying, and she was, my parents just didn't know what to do with her. She was just really, really uh, off the rails. And she, uh, she developed a serious drinking problem where she was drinking a lot, and uh, she was very, she was promiscuous, she was wild, she was, you know, just completely uh, an apostate against the church, uh, angry. The church had nothing to do with the church. Back in 1990, when she was in her 20s, my mom persistently had been praying for her, persistently been praying for her, and invited her to come to an anniversary service at my dad's church. And she went to the church just to, to please my mom. She didn't want to go. You know, she was, you know, drinking heavy. She had no interest in going to the church, but she went to keep mom happy. And so she went, and the preacher, the evangelist was preaching and preaching about Jesus. And, and Debbie said she walked forward because the Holy Spirit was convicting her. She walked forward in that church, and my dad and my mom met her, and they hugged her. And my sister got down on her knees, and she received Jesus, and she became a follower of Jesus. And, and she now leads worship at my dad's church. She's heavily involved. Here's a picture of my sister Debbie. And Debbie decided at some point in her life that it was, it was not working for her being in exile. It wasn't working for her to be in Babylon. And she decided to come home. And she's been home for many, many years now, and she loves Jesus. She's like me. She's not perfect. She's just a regular person. But the Holy Spirit's changed her, and she loves the Lord deeply. Hey, listen, maybe you have been away from home. The whole story of the Old Testament is about waywardness. And when you've been wayward, there's a point that you come back home. And I can just imagine... The prodigal son, as he's coming up that long lane, doesn't say it in the Bible, but I just know it's got to be a long lane, a country lane. And the father sitting on the porch, he's been waiting for that boy to come home. He's been waiting for that son to come home. And finally, that day arrives when he can see in a distance, he can just see the silhouette of his son coming home. And that boy is coming down that lane. And it says the father... The father girds up his loins at what the, new, what the uh, King James says. That means he, he pulled up his robe. And the reason he pulled up his robe, which was very undignified for, a, for an oriental man to do in the first place, to pull his robe up. But he pulled his robe up so he could run faster because he wanted to get to his boy. And that's how God's heart is toward us. That's how God's heart was toward Israel. And God brought them back and they built the temple again. And they built the city again because it's about homecoming. It's about homecoming. The book of Genesis starts out with man leaving home, leaving the Garden of Eden, and being expelled from the garden. And the big story of the gospel is about us coming back home. Are you ready to come back home? Have you been astray? Have you felt yourself far, far away from the Lord? And it's not working. 
and you want to come back home. Let me pray for you today. Maybe you're listening online, and there's a moment right now that you can say, Lord, I'm coming back home. You can get down on your knees if you want to right in your living room. Or you can sit in your lazy boy chair. Or you can sit at the kitchen table. And you can say, Lord, I've gone astray. I've wandered from my faith. But I want to come back home today. Let me pray with you. Lord, I thank you so much that this great, great book talks about us coming home. And I ask you, Lord, to help every person out there at the sound of my voice right now that's been far away from God, far away, and they feel so isolated, so lonely, and they feel they have no purpose, yet you have made them for your glory. And I pray, Father, that you'll bring many people back home today because you have a table for them that they can pull up to and they can dine and sup with you and have eternal fellowship because they've been made to love and walk with you. We thank you for loving us more than we can imagine. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen and amen. Hey, listen, I love you guys. You guys are amazing. Make sure, please, make sure you share this this uh, on, on, uh, on your media source with other people, and we'll see you next week. And listen, happy Thanksgiving.